everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so honored that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am going to be talking with Mary Frances O'Connor, and we're going to be talking with her a lot about grief, in particular, her book called The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. However, before that, here on the Learner's Corner, we try to do three things. The first one is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because there are just some conversations, and and you know this, that you can't have a conversation about anything with uh, anyone. You know, there, there are some people that you just don't want to have certain conversations with because you just know that it's not going to go really well, and and that can make it very challenging as well. The second thing is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them 100%. And the last one is this, is that we believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, regardless of what that is. And today we're going to be talking a lot about grief, which kind of falls into that safe place, difficult conversations, because grief is just one of those things that is not very natural for us to talk about. We don't talk about in a wi- and in the wider society. And we're going to get into that uh you know Mary Frances and I are going to get into that a little bit of why that is. Um but it also falls into the third one as well is that there are some things that we can learn in grief and from grief and even from this conversation or even from uh science that allows us to figure out how we can Um, better process our grief as well. And so I'm really looking forward to uh, bringing this conversation to you. Um, However, if you've been listening for a little while, whether or not this is your first time listening, you know, this isn't the only form that that we have for learning. You know, I am consistently putting out a blog filled with uh, resources, which are some of my best recommendations from books to podcasts to articles to um to videos to you know say maybe even sometimes uh, music from time to time as well just some of the best things that i am currently learning from because i know that life is busy and you know learning can be expensive and sometimes it's you know maybe expensive in time or in money and I want to save you that as much as possible. And so if you're looking for good stuff to leave, uh, to read or learn from, you know, check out the blog. It has all the information on that. Now, here's what got me interested in this book. A few different things. One, I am not naturally uh, good at grieving and or uh, feeling my feelings. And so... Um, Part of it is is my own self-interest of learning how I can get better at that. The other thing is, is I love how Mary Frances incorporates uh, the science to it. And specifically of how that works in our brain and how grief and losing a loved one uh, affects our, our brains. And some of the different things that can help us in our in our grieving process and working through that. And I learned a ton of different stuff from it. And so, uh, you know, we'll jump in here in a second, but let me tell you a little bit about Mary Frances. 
So Mary Frances O'Connor is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona, where she directs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab in investigating the effects of grief on the brain and on the body. She has also earned a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Arizona and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in uh, psychoneuroimmunology at the UCLA Sem Semmel uh, Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior. And she has authored this book, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. And without any further wait, here's my conversation with Mary Frances O'Connor. Well, Mary Frances, so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. It's so great to be here, Caleb. Yeah, and just as we're getting started, uh, I would love to hear what got you interested in learning about and studying and exploring and researching grief? Well, I've always been fascinated by the brain, the way that the brain can take experiences we have in the world, like something like falling in love. How does it then encode that in the in the gray matter? You know, literally, how how does it form those uh, those neurons, those connections? But I have to be honest, probably part of the reason I also stuck with grief as a topic was because my mom was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer when I was 13. And then she died when I was 26. And so I felt like I had a lot of contact with grief for a long time and, and not even just so much my own grief, but really wishing I knew more about how I could have helped her. Um, and I think it meant that I was able to sit with people who were grieving, you know, it doesn't bother me if you cry uncontrollably. And so it made those, you know, clinical interviews maybe deeper and, and enabled me to really get into what people are thinking and feeling and connect that then to what's happening in their brain. Yeah. And I imagine in that research that you probably had your own ideas of about grief and your own theories and stuff. Um, I would be curious to hear some of um, your, your own, like, assumptions that maybe you went into with grief or, or even just like popular assumptions that through your research you've gone you know what it's not quite like that or it's different than what you thought that's so interesting when I was first uh when, when my mom was terminally ill I went to see a counselor I wasn't doing very well and I remember saying to her well you know she's dying I don't know what there is to say <laughs> and now you know this many years later I'm still talking about it so uh, I think grief is often not what we're expecting it to be like, honestly. So I think one of the most helpful things was to discover that the five stages of grief, which is what most people think of when they think of grief, that that comes from 1969. You know, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was a brilliant and radical psychiatrist, a woman ahead of her time who thought, oh, we can actually talk to people who are dying and ask what they're feeling. But think about how far science has come since 1969, right? So it's, uh, uh, we have much more recent theories and data that help us to understand that 
there aren't five stages that you go through in a linear process. So while she was describing what people were experiencing in the moment, whether that was anger or depression or acceptance, it doesn't mean that there are a set of stages you can go through and once you have depression, you never go back to anger and, and that sort of thing. Rather that you know, acceptance increases over time and yearning tends to decrease over time when we look at bigger clinical research studies. Yeah, I think for me, that was one of the, the big eye openers for through reading your book of just this, um, uh, what you were saying, it's more descriptive and helping us uh, identify where we're at and not necessarily going like, well, move through this stage and then this stage and so on and so forth. Um, and I think people feel bad if they haven't like had anger, for example, they feel like, oh, I've done something wrong. And, and that's not true. It's not that you're not done until you experience anger. Yeah. And, I, and it just even makes me think of like, we're, we're very complex beings as well, too. So like, I, like I even thought about um, for, my, for myself, like it is not uh like, I think my personality and everything, it's more difficult for me to tap into emotions. It requires like a lot more energy. Yeah. And so I even just think of myself of like, well, it, anger might not come naturally, even though it is there somewhere. Yes, mm. Absolutely. But it's also just okay if it isn't there, Yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, what are some other assumptions that you kind of went in and uh, maybe changed your mind about? I think another thing that has been really helpful, and I didn't used to make this distinction until I started studying um, grief and grieving, and it's exactly that, that there's a difference between grief and grieving. So grief is that, you know, that wave that just takes over and you just feel awful, like you wish you could go back in time or you just want your loved one to be there so much. Grieving, on the other hand, is the way that grief changes over time without ever going away, right? So as an example, the first hundred times that you get that wave of grief that overcomes you, you may think, I I'm not even going to get through this moment, you know? And the hundred and first time, it's still awful and painful, but you may recognize it, right? It may feel sort of familiar, or you may know some ways to comfort yourself, or even just knowing, and the wave will crest and recede again, you know? So I feel like grieving means that our understanding over time changes. And it doesn't mean just because you have a wave of grief six years or six decades after somebody dies that you've done anything wrong and you're grieving. It just means at that moment, you're aware of losing someone who's so important to you. Yeah. Can you talk just more about that? Because I imagine, you know, I mean, and even just in my own life, like if you, if you have grief, as you mentioned, after decades, it can probably be, it can probably feel exhausting at, yes. at times because it's like, I, I thought I was done with this, you know, yeah. Year, yeah. years ago, what, what has helped you with that? Mm -hmm. And what have you learned through the research that helps us in that? Oh, that's a really good point. Grief is exhausting. And I think a lot about how exhausting it is at the beginning when we're really trying to understand now that the rug has been ripped out from under us. But you're right in the sense of, oh my gosh, am I still having to deal with this so much later? And I think, you know, the way I think about it is 
as we change as human beings, right? We grow up, we develop, we, we have new stages in our life um, that you're going to relate to the person who died from all those new stages. So for example, my sister is engaged and there'll be a wedding. And I know that on that day, she and I will have some moment where we get all teared up and think about our mom and wish that she was there. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us, right? It's just that now we're having an experience that she would have been a part of and just sort of recognizing and, and I think making some room for each other, knowing that that's likely to happen so that we can acknowledge her absence and, and think about what she would have enjoyed about the day as well, without thinking that, oh, this means now I'm going to, you know, spend the next few weeks in, in the pits. Yeah. Can you talk about uh, what happens in the brain whenever we are, whenever we have lost someone or, or in some cases it is a thing, you know, maybe a treasured possession or something along those lines. Can you talk about what is literally happening in our brain as we're going through that process? Well, I think that the death of really close loved ones, so, you know, the death of a parent or a spouse or a child, even a sibling, I think these are a little bit unique in the sense that our brain really evolved to help us survive, right? And our loved ones are as important to us as food and water, right? We just don't thrive if someone isn't there to care for us and if we aren't able to care for someone else. And so I think those unique grief aspects are really deeply encoded in the brain. And so we know some about what happens when you fall in love, right? When you fall in love with your mate or with your child, um, that the proteins in particular parts of your brain, like the nucleus accumbens, which if you don't care about brain regions, you can pretend I didn't say, but the proteins in your brain really change the way they're folded and the neurons uh, fire in different patterns because of having this bonded relationship. And so then there's this, thankfully very unusual event where the person dies and the brain is really a prediction machine right like it's it's using thousands of days of experience to predict what might happen next and so it really suddenly has to deal with the fact that this bond meant they're always going to be there for me and I'm always going to be there for them and that doesn't fit with the stream of information from your memories, right? From being at the bedside when they died or being at the funeral. So those two conflicting bits of information, they're sort of my one and only on the one hand, and, and I should just go get them if they're not in my presence, conflict with what you know to be the reality. I think this is why people say, you know, I know they're gone, but it just feels like they're going to walk back into the room again. So I think taking this perspective of the brain helps us to be a little more patient. It takes a long time for the brain to be able to predict this is life now. This is what it means to be, you know, making dinner or retiring or whatever with the absence of this person. Hmm. Yeah. What, what I would love to tell you what came to my mind whenever just as I was reading it, like the, as an example, and then I would love your thoughts on, yeah, it, it does play out that like that or it doesn't. What, what came to my mind is like almost like you're going for a hike or you're going for a walk and, you know, you, you go on this walk normally all, all the time. And then all of a sudden, like the path that you were taking is blocked off. 
and you can yeah. no longer go there and you have to find a new path. Is it sim? Is it similar to that? Is it, how is it different than that? I think that's a great analogy. You know, everything, every habit that we knew suddenly doesn't work the same, right? So this is the experience of picking up the phone because something happened and you want to tell your, you know, dad, and then you realize, well, I can't do that. So all of those habits just walk in the path, right? All of those habits have to be newly learned again. So what does Christmas look like if my mom isn't there? Or how do I parent my child who I was supposed to be doing this with my spouse? And that I think is a great example. The, the path we've always used is just blocked from us and we don't know at first how to get around. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that I, it, it stood out to me so much while going through the book is, um, is your hesitancy to give advice whenever people are going through grief because grief is so unique in so many people and shows up in so many different ways. I'd be curious your thoughts on how do you, how do you balance that uniqueness versus offering like guidance to someone who is going through grief? Yeah, boy, I do think this is so important because each person is going to learn whatever it is they're going to learn, you know, and that's, not something advice, you know, whatever it is you're going to learn, whatever insight you're going to have is going to come from the inside. It's not going to come from advice, mm. right? But I still think that people can share stories of what they know to be true. And then most importantly, listen to what the grieving person is saying for what's true for them, right? And to really think about grieving as a form of learning. And so to really try and, and help this person understand what is it that you're learning? How, how can you make a more meaningful life for yourself? What activities might you try out even though you're not sure that they're gonna feel very good because you, know, you enjoyed them at one time or it's worth trying something new. I think a lot of it is that listening is more important than talking when we're with someone and sharing honestly, if that's what the person is able to hear at that time, can create a connection of my grief isn't the same as your grief, but we are, um, we are common humanity, right? We are mm -hmm. common in the fact that we have grief and that can create a moment of connection when people are feeling really alone. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, uh, grieving as a form of learning, which again is just enough. I'm going to just keep saying this probably all throughout the podcast It's just another idea that I hadn't really thought of before. And so I would be curious, like, can you tease out that more of like what grief, like what does, uh, grieving while learning and how, um, how can we learn while going through the grieving process also? Mm. This really struck me after a long time of studying the brain and, and the grieving process. And I realized that a number of the different things that sort of have to happen while we're grieving or often happen while we're grieving could be thought of as learning because, you know, several of the things even that I've mentioned already. So developing new habits, right? That's a form of learning, isn't it? And 
And no one can develop a habit overnight. That's just not how it works. It takes time. It takes motivation. It takes um, experience in order to learn something, uh, learn a new habit. But also the sort of bigger picture things of, of who am I now, right? Like if I describe myself as a daughter, that's a, that's a description of me, but that actually implies two people, doesn't mm -hmm. it, right? And so how do I be a daughter in the world if my mother isn't there? And, and so thinking about, well, what would that look like? And what would I do that my mom would be proud of? Or how would I do this differently than my mom did because I got to witness her experience? Um, that is also a form of learning. And so I think both in, in learning to deal with these waves of grief, learning to deal with habits, learning to understand this chapter of your life, I think they can all be thought of as learning. What, what came to my mind just as you were talking about it is the role that our, that our identity plays as yeah. it pertains to grief. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I think this is a really important one and, and something there's a little bit of research about, but we don't often talk about, I think, in regular conversation. Uh, so thinking about who am I now, you know, when we have a loved one in the world, the brain has encoded a we, right? So there are neurons that fire because there's a we and not just a you and a me, right? So when we lose someone on this earthly plane, that we changes. It means there is a piece of us that is missing, right? That representation of the we. And so, you know, you hear it in conversation, you hear there'll be a way in which people describe, you know, and then we moved to London and then we did this and we did that. And at some point there's also recognizing, and now it's, I am doing this and I am doing that. And so that's a big shift for people. And I think people often feel quite lost, especially if their lives were very, very overlapping. So I have talked with people in my research where people work together and they live together, or um, you think about a child where, you know, everything that you're doing for them, they need you to do. They're completely dependent on you. So your lives are completely overlapping. And those are situations where the we is such a big part uh, of you <laughs> that it takes, it takes a long time to figure out what it would even mean to be me without that person. Yeah. And that even just made me think of, and, you, and you've, you've hit on it several times throughout this is that this is not like a short-term process, especially for, no. for relationships that, um, that have been with us for literally decades, exactly. um, which I think sometimes is just a good reminder too. Uh, yeah. because I mean, I think that the other thing that came to my mind, um, you know, we talked about exhaustion, but also shame, shame could be a very yes. real thing. Um, with this. can you talk about like the role that sometimes shame shows up in our, in our lives with grieving? Yeah, I think, you know, the one that I'm reminded of right now because of what you've just said is that people are embarrassed about still grieving as it were. And I think it's hard if you haven't been through it to understand how long it really takes to adjust your whole life. And 
I think that shame is sort of, I know I should be doing X, Y, and Z, but I just can't, or I'm not motivated, or I just don't care anymore. And the people around us may be waiting for us to do those things as a sign that we're sort of okay again. But I think in reality, it's much more about flexibility. My dad had a very good friend whose wife died. And he told me that this friend wanted to show him a photo album over and over again of he and his wife together, things they had done together. And my dad said to me, I'm a little worried. Like, is he spending too much time? And I am I encouraging him by sitting with him looking at this photo album? And I said, well, dad, I think it depends. Are there other, you know, parts of your day where you're going to your Kiwanis meeting and you're cooking dinner together and you're uh, planning a, a, to go see a concert, right? If there's that other part of your day as well, and, and then there are moments where you want to reflect and you want to express how you're feeling about this, this deep absence, this pain, as long as there's both, I think that's a real sign of mental health. But I think for the person who who isn't sure, right? Who's saying, should I ask them to put the photo album away? Uh, it's really difficult for them. And he told me many years later that he probably wouldn't have continued to have those conversations if I hadn't encouraged him, but that over time, you know, he just stopped doing it as much and mm -hmm. then stopped doing it at all. And that was just the process he needed. Yeah. Uh, and this, this might be a little bit of a, a tricky question, but what does, uh, what does like healthy grief look like versus like un unhealthy grief? Boy, there is just so much individual variation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can say, you know, you, you might think of me as an expert on grief, but that's <laughs> sort of an expert on grief in average, right? Yeah. In aggregate. Yeah. And each person is really going to look so different. So mm -hmm. I think a sign of health, like I say, is being able to have a full range of emotions across a day or a week, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that you're not only stuck in feeling really down and feeling really lonely and that you can't get out and do anything. Um, going out, even if it doesn't feel normal or it doesn't feel right, is still a way for your brain to get experience, to learn what it is like to be out in the world now. Um, but that's going to take a different length of time and, yeah. and be a different proportion of time for every individual. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess uh, like I even just had the thought of, especially in like the first few weeks or maybe even a few months, depending on the time, like you might not have those, like the full spectrum of emotions and everything. Um, you might think that, but it's actually very surprising. I think, you know, I find that people can tell funny stories about their loved one, right? Where they really are sort of giggling, even if they're crying at the same time. Um, and people can often feel both lonely and also know that they're being really deeply cared for, be really surprised by how good people are to them. So you see what I mean? Like, even yeah. when you are still aware of this loss, there are still times when you might feel good things as well. Yeah. And that makes me think of what you uh, write about in the book and you talk about there's a difference between grief and depression. 
as mm. well. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Uh, I think for a long time, we thought they were the same thing. And some really careful research has, has shown us that they are different. Of course, you can both have grief and depression, right? That just like you could have depression and anxiety, right? Um, but depression really tends to be much bigger than just about the person who's died. So for example, yearning, which is so much a part of grief, right? Really wanting this person to be back and almost not being able to bear it that they're not. Yearning isn't actually a part of depression. Depression is feeling sad or guilty or hopeless about a lot of different things, right? I feel guilty about my mothering. I feel worried about what's going to happen in the world. I feel hopeless about, you know, this situation at work. It's sort of, um, it's almost contagious with everything that you think about and participate in. There's sort of a, a dark cloud around it and often a feeling that it is your fault. Well, that difference then means that you could feel those things after the death of a loved one, but grief tends to be much more about the person who's died. I want to go back to, and you've mentioned it a few times, you know, you did so many interviews uh, with people who were, you know, like grieving and I imagine at you know various stages of the grieving process too uh, definitely I I would love to hear what are the things that like just kept coming up in those conversations uh that that really stood out to you mm. it is true that uh I've interviewed people at a lot of different ages in a lot of different life situations um I think just the the degree to which people worry they're not normal, <laughs> that seems to transcend everything. They're worried I've been grieving too long or I haven't been grieving long enough or, you know, so I'm feeling it too much or I'm feeling it too little. Um, people talk a lot about uh, wanting to um, understand the would have, should have, could have right? So these questions that just roll around and round in your head, like, what if I could have gotten them to the doctor earlier? Or what if they wouldn't have had that last drink? Or, right? So the sort of round and round and round, trying to move the situation around in your head. And the trouble with those thoughts, although they're totally natural, especially at the beginning, we have all sorts of thoughts. Um, but the trouble with spending a lot of time in those thoughts is that each of those virtual realities ends in, and then my loved one didn't die, right? Mm. But the reality is that they did die. And so if we're spending a lot of time in those sort of infinite questions that have no answers, we're actually not spending that time in the present moment. And it's in the present moment that our living loved ones are, that you know, beautiful sunsets happen and um, puppies are born and you know, the barista gives you this big smile, right? All those things in the present moment, we can't experience if we're stuck in some story in our head. Uh, one, one of the things, and, and, uh, if you disagree, you can, you can push back on this. Um, but I don't know if our society at large is necessarily great at, at grieving, especially whenever it comes to uh, collective grieving and all of that. And, um, I would be curious, like, is it just as simple as 
grieving is like, it feels very negative and it weighs us down. And so we just don't do it. And so we don't do it. Or is it more complicated than that? I would love your thoughts on why don't we grieve? Boy, it's, it's a big question, isn't it? I think it is very painful to sit with someone who is suffering. And I will tell you, I've been doing this for a very long time and I will still say things. And I think, why did I say that to them? You know what I mean? So I think it is that anxiety about being with someone who's in so much pain and knowing that ultimately you can't take that away. You can comfort, you can listen, you can see a future that they might not be able to see. But I think it is, it's, it's human to be kind of afraid of that, the contagiousness of that, or to not have enough worked out in your own head around mortality and death and grief that you could really just be present for what they're experiencing. So I think there's a lot of reasons. I think death has really um, happened a lot more behind closed doors in the last few generations than it did. At one time, everyone died at home, right? And so we all saw what that was like. And um, the body was cared for at home before um, a funeral or um, burial. And so I, I think we've also lost touch a little bit with what that experience is for people. And we haven't necessarily grown up with it. Mm -hmm. I grew up Irish Catholic and we had wakes in my family, you know, and, and there'd be an aunt or an uncle there in the casket and my cousins and I are running around and, you know, my uncles are drinking whiskey and, and you know, it was just part of the, the scene that, that the deceased person was also there. So I think having this closed door, it happens in a hospital or it happens, you know, behind the funeral cemetery, you know, doors makes it harder for us to really understand. Uh, another thing I want to ask you about is parasocial grieving and like, so, like celebrity, celebrity deaths and how, how do we grieve through that process? Can you talk about that and how it differs um, or even how it's similar um, to, you know, a, a close level one passing away? Well, you know, I had said that there has to be this bond in order for us then to feel grief. And so it's often very shocking at, you know, when somebody dies, when Betty White died, right? Or, um, you know, when Princess Diana died, right? Just the outpouring of grief that happens among people who, of course, have never met her or didn't have a relationship with her. And I think it is actually a form of grief. And some of that I think is because many of these people are celebrities or artists. We know a lot about their life, but they're also markers of identity for us, right? So it is often musicians that we listened to for hours and hours and hours, you know, when we were in college or uh, actors that we binge watched, right? For, for a long period of time. And and these, you know, these authors may say things that, or, or may write lyrics that we think, oh my gosh, they really know me, right? No one else would say that. They know how I feel. And in a way that is a kind of bonding, even though it's sort of one way, it is and it isn't, right? They've expressed this and you've really taken it in. And so I think most losses are a part of a loss of, of kind of we, a part of a, a loss of ourselves, a part of ourselves. 
And so we lose a time in our life, right? If a musician dies when, when we were doing all these things, or we lose a piece of our identity if, you know, uh, a famous athlete dies that we really identified with, that we really respected and admired and tried to be like, then in a sense, we have lost a piece of ourselves. Yeah. Uh, another thing I want to ask you about is uh, you write about rumination as well as ruminating on our grief. And you make the distinction uh, under that of, you know, there's brooding and then there's reflection. Can you tease that out a little bit more? There's a researcher, Susan Nolan Hexema, who has since passed away, who really distinguished in rumination, those thoughts that just keep coming back to you, made a distinction between reflection and brooding. And reflection really is more about analyzing your thoughts, right, or your feelings and kind of doing it intentionally, right? Inward turning to, to understand what's happening. Brooding, on the other hand, is a much more passive situation. So brooding happens even when you didn't necessarily mean to be thinking about something. I think this often happens when we go to bed at night and the thoughts are, are just with us there. But it's more, it's less about problem solving than it is about just sort of the thoughts going round and round and round. Why me? Why is this happening? Why do I feel so bad? When will I, will I, ne will I never feel any better? And so the distinction is subtle, but the, but the research suggests that it is brooding that actually contributes to longer periods of depression, for example, um, this sort of passive state. Um, but reflection, uh, can feel a lot like brooding. It can be difficult to tell the difference. I think really it's about if you have been reflecting on something and then you come up with sort of a plan, like, well, tomorrow I'm going to call a friend because I think I've been spending too much time alone or I don't want to feel this way anymore. And so I'm going to start, I'm going to start exercising again, right? So when you have a period of thought that ends up in kind of a plan, then often that's a very good reason to have reflected on what you're feeling. When, uh, when we've, and at some point we are going to find ourselves going through the grieving process. We've probably yeah. already been through it. Um, what is like a, a skill or two that you found throughout your research that we can kind of like add to our tool belt that can, that can help us along the way, because, you know, as, as we mentioned earlier, grieving is something that we have, a, we have a lot of learning to do whenever, like, yeah. and I'm, you know, preaching to myself there too. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I think what really matters is having a big toolkit of coping strategies that you can use in different situations. So for example, we think of avoidance as a really bad thing, right? But Grieving is really hard on your body and on your mind, and there's nothing wrong with taking a break, right? So there may be some moment, it's the Super Bowl, and you've decided, you know what, I'm just going to pretend this isn't happening. I'm going to, you know, sit down with my best friend. We're going to watch this game. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to focus on this game. There's nothing wrong with that. It gives you a break. It enables you to engage in another part of life. And 
if avoidance is the only strategy you keep reaching for over and over and over again, then, you know, probably you're not going to learn as much about how to tolerate those really strong feelings. But it's, it's not that there's anything wrong with, with using it occasionally, as long as you also do other things like um, reminiscing with, you know, your siblings about your, your mom who died or, um, participating in a memorial walk, right, for, for the cancer that your aunt died of. Um, as long as you're doing kind of multiple things, it usually helps to fit whatever situation you're dealing with. Mm. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the person who, who is grieving and is in the grieving process. I would be curious to hear your thoughts on, for, for those of us who maybe we have someone who is currently grieving right now and we want to be there for that person i would be curious to hear your thoughts on either what you've learned yourself or even picked up through other interviews or just research of what what can we do that is helpful for the person who is who is hurting and grieving i think part of it is actually exactly that same flexibility so the analogy that i use is if you've ever taken care of a little kid you know sort of a toddler and they're at the playground and you're sitting on the bench and they're playing and they fall down and scrape their knee. And it's very painful. You know, sometimes you will go over and scoop them up and hug them and kiss them and pull out the bandaid and, you know, tell them it's going to be okay. But then other times you're going to look over and you're going to say, it's okay. You took a big fall, but you're okay. Get up, get up. You can do it. Get back on the, you know, the swing or whatever it is. And I think being a friend to someone who's grieving is a lot that same way, having lots of different um, ways of offering support to them. And then asking what, what part of that is helpful for them, you know? One of the very best things that my, my best friend said to me when I was having a really tough time grieving, she said, you know, you're doing really well in an impossible situation. Mm-hmm. And it just, oh, it was so helpful. You're trying so hard. And to have somebody recognize that even though your shoes don't match, (laughs) you really are doing the best that you can um, and that it's only going to get better is is just so helpful to have that support. Yeah. Uh, What surprised you the most in your research? Oh, what surprised me the most? Boy, that's a good question. I suppose what surprised me the most was finding out that in the brain, this this system of uh, encoding our loved ones is a part of what we call the reward network. So it's not rewarding in the sense of like, it just feels good, although it does feel good to bond with our loved ones to spend time with them. But part of that is to encourage us to do it again and again, right? It's sort of the, um, the wanting part, right? That, that it really reminds us how important it is to seek out our loved ones and spend time with them. So this part of the brain that is called the reward system then was also something we saw 
after the death of a loved one. So we saw more activity in this brain region when people were yearning more for the person who had died. And at first that seemed really weird, right? Like why is the person who's having a harder time showing more activity in the reward network? But if you come to think about it as this is still the same wanting that you would have had when they were alive. And that for other people, they found a way to recognize they're not going to get to seek them out again, that they will still have memories, that they still have thoughts about the loved one and, and strong feelings, but that they're no longer trying to predict that, that they will see this person again or that they can be with them again. Um, that was very surprising to me yeah. to think about it that way, that sort of the bond is what comes first and we have to untangle that after the death. Uh, someone who shows up so much throughout the book that you quote is C.S. Lewis. And, uh, you know, he wrote, uh, I mean, and you know this, A Grief Observed. And I would love to hear what so resonated with you about C.S. Lewis that made you, uh, like he's probably, uh, again, I didn't count, but he might be the most quoted person in the book. <laughs> he might be. You know, the thing about artists, and I count authors as, as part of artists, is that they're able to put into words things that in ways that we just never can otherwise. And I think there's something so valuable in getting to see another person's description of what the experience is like, that feeling of, of sort of oh, I feel that too. I, I couldn't have expressed it that well, but I feel that too. And, and that helps me to feel more normal um, or even just touches me deeply. Boy, we really need artists and poets and, and musicians for that. I think C.S. Lewis and Joan Didion as well, uh, another author who writes about grieving, they both just have such ways of putting things. Um, that I find very helpful uh, as descriptions. Yeah, that makes me think of uh, recently, I had uh, a conversation with another woman named Jessica Ritchie, and she works at the, the Everything Happens Initiative. I don't know if you're familiar with that or mm. not, um, but she talked a lot about that idea of learning to borrow someone else's language and, and how that helps us. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And that reminds me of uh, um, something they say at Open to Hope, um, which is a wonderful podcast and website uh, for people who are grieving. And uh, they say, if you don't feel that you have any hope, you can borrow ours for a while. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. 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 And I think that just even, it just makes me think of just the, like our relationships that you talked about yeah. and how key that they can be, especially in the, in the grieving process. Um, yeah especially again, just something that I remember uh, hearing, I can't remember if it was quite in your book or if it was somewhere else, um, but just the importance of going beyond the first initial weeks of, of yes. the grieving. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's so important that, you know, the, the funeral dies down and, and the relatives go back to wherever city they're from. And suddenly it's like the 
world has gone on, but not for you. And no one mentions his name anymore. And, you know, people may ask, how are you? But they almost don't want to know, you know, the answer. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's so helpful to remember that this is a long-term process. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be talking about it with them all the time. But for example, uh, a friend in our sort of small group of friends, our close, close-knit group of friends, he had, um, he had lost his mom and it had been a few months and we were at an event together and afterwards in the parking lot, he sort of blew his stack, you know, he just sort of lost it. And we were all quite shocked. This was not like him. And, uh, and the thing he was losing it about seemed so trivial. And I said to them later, you know, we have to remember he just lost his mom. So he wasn't talking about his mom, but for many bereaved people, it's like the emotion volume dial just got turned up. And so for him, he's experiencing a lot more than we are, even in the same situation. So giving the benefit of the doubt a little bit goes a long way, I think. Yeah. Uh, towards, towards the end of the book, you have this quote and you say, you know, to restore a meaningful life, we have to be able to imagine that life. The inability to generate possible future events is at the heart of hopelessness. And whenever you're feeling so down, it could be so hard to feel hope. And so, uh, again, I know that you don't give advice, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, whenever, whenever we find ourselves there, what have you learned can help us like regain that sense of hope? You know, what we know from good empirical research about psychotherapy for grief, and there are some very good targeted psychotherapies, is that one thing that is very helpful, people often have stopped doing meaningful activities. And it's because they're not finding them meaningful, yeah. right? What's so unlikely, but turns out to be true, is that helping people to come up with ideas of things they might do giving them the support and encouragement to try them out is so important. It's almost like because you know it's not going to feel like it used to, you don't engage in it at all, right? Let's say I'm not going to go out with my couple friends because my, my wife has died and it's just not going to be the same now. Or I'm not going to go to this concert or this movie because it's what we would have done together and, and it's just not going to be the same. Well, sometimes it's finding new activities, but sometimes it's engaging in activities that you have enjoyed. And ironically, it's almost like you have to build the habit first and then the enjoyment and the hope comes along after, yeah. right? So you do this a few times and then you suddenly realize, oh, that was actually a really good meal. I really enjoyed that, that dish that I had, right? And that comes as a surprise but only after you've already tried. And people, I think, because they anticipate how they're going to feel and we're often wrong about how we're actually going to feel in a situation, they just don't try in the first place. So ironically, I think it's doing things first and hope will come along with it. Yeah. Uh, another quote that you have the end that at the end that I uh, would love your thoughts on is you say, as important as it is to study those who are having the greatest difficulty adjusting to life after loss, there might be much to be gained by studying people who have created beautiful, meaningful, loving lives 
after terrible losses. And I would be curious if if you've had a chance to do any research or work into that and what you've learned through that. This is something in psychology we call post-traumatic growth. And it really is such an important and understudied area, I think. What we know from the research that's been done before already is that that it comes in a few flavors or we've identified a few flavors, so to speak. One of them is that some people discover sort of the carpe diem, right? Like, oh my goodness, now I really know how fragile life is and I better take advantage of today because we don't know what's going to happen. And they find this to be both a positive thing, but, but even more than that, a meaningful thing of what am I going to do today and what will matter that I do today. Another flavor is, wow, people are better than I expected. So people have been kinder. People I didn't expect have been genuinely kind to me. Um, people have helped me out that I wasn't expecting. So that's another kind of um, insight that some people have. Um, and, and then another one is that some people experience an understanding of spirituality that they didn't have before, not necessarily religion, although that can happen, mm-hmm. um, but, but more a sense of spirituality, a feeling of being connected to the world and to nature and to other human beings. So we don't know a lot about who goes that direction and who doesn't. Um, but certainly, I think there's a lot to learn from them. Um, I, I, it's an area I would like to know more about. Yeah. Well, I got one final thing I want to ask you. But before that, is there anything that we haven't covered or haven't talked about that you want to make sure uh, to cover that's just top of mind? Mm, boy, we have covered so much. <laughs> I can't think of anything off the top of my no, head. That, that's good. I just love to offer it up. Um, uh, what would be a final word of just encouragement to, you know, to someone who is gr- who's going through the grieving process or, um, or someone who is uh, with someone who is going through the grieving process? I think that each person will come to what they're going to learn for themselves, but I can share something that as a neuroscientist, I find very comforting, which is knowing that my brain has been changed because of being loved by this person and having loved them, that physically my brain is different. It feels to me like I carry a piece of them, even though their own body is gone. And I see the world through a brain that has been changed by them, physically changed by them. Although that's the data part, I find the fact of that very comforting that I carry them with me. Um, So I would offer that won't work for everyone, but it has certainly given me a lot of peace. Yeah. Well, Mary Frances, I know that people are going to want to continue to learn from you, pick up the book, The Grieving Brain and all of that stuff. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? The book is sold anywhere that you can buy books, including Kindle and and Audible uh, types. Um, And maryfrancis.com is where you'll find more about my research. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And thank you for doing the work. You bet. Thank you for bringing this conversation to a lot of people, Caleb.
So coming out of that conversation with Mary Francis, there's several different things that have, will, will stay with me uh, after that. I think the one is what we talked about of grief being a path or our our journey with our loved one being a path. And, you know, when when the when our loved one passes away or they die, that that blocks off the path. And so just realizing that it's going to take time to to explore this new terrain to or terrain to explore this new path um i think the other one is just going through the stages of grief and just realizing that they are better as describers and not as prescription and that it's okay if you aren't currently experiencing all of the all of the stages of grief and i think just realizing uh, actually I'll, I'll say the last thing real quick i think the other thing is uh is processing celebrity deaths is what we talked about and, and the role that that has and i think all of it just better helps me um be more compassionate to myself of just learning that it is a process in that it's it's okay that if, if you aren't experiencing your grief like someone else, it's okay if the grieving is is difficult and it feels new and and foreign because in many cases it, it is. It is that. And so I think that's it for me of just learning what is around grief and what grief is made up of. I think it is just helping me be more compassionate towards myself and being more kind to myself and i hope this conversation has left you feeling similarly as well of feeling greater compassion towards yourself and in your grieving process or if you haven't had to go through something like that you know in in life that has felt that severe that one day that will help you as well be more kind and compassionate to yourself now if you enjoyed this episode, I would love to hear from you some of your takeaways, some of the things that you've learned from. The best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast.com. You can also share some things that you would love to learn about on the podcast or people that you would love uh, to see on the podcast as well. And, you know, if you enjoy this content, you know, hit subscribe, leave a rating, write a review on the podcast and check out my blog as well to where I'm recommending a bunch of different things that you can learn from um, because I know that learning is expensive. It costs you time and sometimes it costs you money as well. And I want to save you as much of those things as possible. And so if you're looking for good recommendations of what to learn from, you know, from books to videos to podcasts to um, to music, to whatever that is, you know, check out the blog and I'll have, I have a bunch of recommendations of some of the best things that I'm learning from and some of the people that I am learning from as well. And I think that's all that I have for today. And so thanks to Sam Massey for providing the music for the podcast. Thanks to Mary Francis for being on the podcast. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.